Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Friday, May 5th, 2023, the 835th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening for free on a wide variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So last night, I joined my pal Apollo on Conservative Daily, and you can find that on Rumble. Just search Conservative Daily. I'll be right there. Their evening episode from May 4th, 2023. And at one point, we were talking about how dysfunctional these top-down, centralized communist systems are and how we can see that right in front of our eyes right now. 
And I was making the point I made a couple of weeks ago when we discussed the article in The Hollywood Reporter about how Amazon Prime Studios is an absolute mess. The people at the top of the organization don't seem to have any vision or even any decision-making power, indicating that decisions are coming down to them from a higher level that they are supposed to sell to the public and essentially just manage and do PR for. And I compared that model to Rochelle Walensky at CDC. I asked Apollo, is there any way that you could actually watch that woman speak and handle herself in a hearing and see her go out on television to tell people what's going on and think that that woman possesses even average intelligence? It's not even plausible in my mind. And we don't have to pretend otherwise just because she has a high ranking position at a major quasi-governmental organization. In fact, in that system, they stock the leadership in those organizations with people who are easily controlled and only marginally competent. These are not the best and brightest people who know how to get the job done on behalf of others. They're just there to implement a program and tell the public that everything's okay. Rochelle Walensky fits in with everything we see from the fake administration. It is just chock full of the dumbest and most incompetent people anyone could ever imagine. Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Jen Psaki, Corinne Jean-Pierre, Alejandro Mayorkas, Pete Buttigieg. How long do I need to keep going down this list? Not one of these people is remotely competent, And none of them exhibit even marginal intelligence. They just continue to do what they're told. And hey, maybe Rochelle Walensky was watching and maybe I hurt her feelings because today it's being reported that she is stepping down from her position as CDC director. The White House released a statement. It reads, Dr. Walensky has saved lives with her steadfast and unwavering focus on the health of every American. As director of the CDC, she led a complex organization on the front lines of a once in a generation pandemic with honesty and integrity. She marshaled our finest scientists and public health experts to turn the tide on the urgent crises we've faced. Dr. Walensky leaves CDC a stronger institution, better positioned to confront health threats and protect Americans. We have all benefited from her service and dedication to public health, and I wish her the best in her next chapter. And that is a statement directly from the fake president, Joe Biden. And because he says I in the statement, you know, he must have written it himself. And what timing she has. The covid emergency in the United States is ending. The vaccine mandate for international travelers into the United States is ending. Federal employees no longer have to get the vaccine. And then we have this today from Tedros, the director of the WHO. Another person you can look at and listen to and realize very quickly, this guy has no idea what he's talking about, and he's just saying what he's supposed to say. Has Tedros displayed even the slightest scintilla of expertise throughout the last three years. Even once has anyone seen an example 
where he came out and was right about something and properly advising the world on what should happen next to respond to this very real, very deadly pandemic. I would love to see even one example of that. Here he is. Yesterday, the emergency committee met for the 15th time and recommended to me that I declare an end to the public health emergency of international concern. I have accepted that advice. It's therefore with great hope that I declare COVID-19 over as a global health emergency. However, that does not mean COVID-19 is over as a global health threat. They had a committee get together. The committee decided to advise Tedros that the public health emergency, the global health emergency for the COVID-19 pandemic is over now. And he accepted their advice. And now he's telling us the global public health emergency is over, which is by the way, totally meaningless in a real world sense. We don't have to do what the WHO says ever. And we shouldn't do what the WHO says ever. In fact, if the WHO says something, we should commit ourselves to doing the opposite of what the WHO says. But for whatever technical purposes they might have, the global health emergency is over, but not the global health threat. Because COVID-19 will always be with us and it will always be very, very dangerous. Just not dangerous enough to make it a global health emergency. But don't worry, there's another one on the horizon. And what else is on the horizon? Well, we have the end of Title 42 next week and a rush of illegal aliens ready to come into the country which will surely wake quite a few people up to the problem of illegal immigration. We're going to start hearing things from the uniparty left about how these brave people are simply escaping climate change or gang violence or just want a better life so they can attempt to rationalize and justify the slave trade that's being run on the southern border in coordination with global governance organizations, NGOs and drug cartels. And we're getting into SCOTUS season, where the decisions begin to come down. We're only a few weeks away from getting some major decisions. And it was May 2nd last year when the Dobbs decision leaked. So with some critical decisions coming up, the uniparty left and the mainstream media have been hell-bent on discrediting in every way they can Clarence Thomas. They want Clarence Thomas removed from the court. They want a reason to pack the court. And Mike Davis from the Article 3 Project was a guest on Steve Bannon's War Room this morning. And this clip is a few minutes long. I think it's totally worth playing because he lays out the whole thing. I haven't spent a whole lot of time covering this Clarence Thomas story because I think largely it's just worthless. They're trying to claim that Clarence Thomas is corrupt for acting in ways every other justice acts, and it's quite obviously a targeted takedown. Here's Mike Davis. Brother Davis, walk me through the Supreme Court, one of the most um, uh, important institutions in our nation and probably the world um, from time immemorial, and now just a relentless assault. If, if the audience has to understand something. 
this is a political war. And our opposition will use any means necessary for to win and to have control. And we don't. We don't. What they're doing to the Supreme Court and what they're doing to Justice Thomas is one of the most organized hits I've ever seen in my life. And I've seen a couple of organized hits, maybe run one or two in my life. This is this is pretty awe-inspiring. They're coming at every different direction. They've done years of research on this. They've weaponized it, and it's all to take out Justice Thomas. Uh, Mike Davis, your thoughts and observations. Yeah, we talked about this last night in, at the Manistee Republican Lincoln Day dinner, and it's, look, we've had a, uh, we, 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 for the first 150 years of, of our republic, the Supreme Court understood its critical role was to keep the federal government in check, to protect everyday Americans from government overreach and government breakdown. And that was perfectly well understood until about 90 years ago. And when the Democrats threatened to pack the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court was striking down FDR's New Deal program as unconstitutional, then there was the switch in time that saved nine. And they threatened to put six more justices on the nine-member Supreme Court, this a liberal supermajority to make sure that they rubber stamp everything that these politicians in Washington wanted to do. And for the last 90 years, we've seen how badly that's turned out for our country, where we have the federal government that's completely out of control. Our founders would be stunned to find out what they they have created with our federal government. It's uh, it, We flipped the Constitution on its head uh, and said the federal government has uh, unlimited powers, essentially, instead of limited powers that are enumerated in the Constitution. Then we have this administrative state where these uh, this fourth branch of government is uh, thinks it's the uh, the thinks it's the legislature, thinks it's the executive branch and thinks it's the judiciary. And it's just gotten out of control. The Supreme Court has changed. President Trump transformed the Supreme Court with the appointments of Justice Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, and it's the first constitutionalist majority on the Supreme Court in nearly 90 years. And they're on the verge of rolling back the federal government. We have the Chevron case this term, where hopefully by July they're going to overturn Chevron deference and put a a major check on these administrative agencies. And that's what the Democrats fear. That's why they're doing this organized campaign to go after the Supreme Court. They're trying to delegitimize the Supreme Court justices so they can destroy the Supreme Court, either cow the justices to rule the way the Democrats want or destroy the Supreme Court with court packing, impeachment, jurisdiction, jurisdiction uh, uh, snatching term limits. And that's what they're trying to do. They have hated Clarence Thomas for 40 years since he escaped the Democrats' plantation. Jenny Thomas, his wife, never worked in the Democrats' kitchen. They've tried to destroy the Thomases for 31 years that he's been on the Supreme Court. It's not going to work. They're only going to embolden the man. And it's the Clarence Thomas court. President Trump delivered the five from the five to four left of center court to the five to four Clarence Thomas court. And it is the last line of defense protecting Americans from these politicians, power grabs and tyranny and anarchy. Okay, so he mentioned a couple of Supreme Court issues that are about to see decisions, and this is all going to be out there and done by the end of June. Obviously, there's no way to know whether there will be a leaked decision coming out as the Dobbs decision was leaked last year, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But it's certainly possible that one will. Either way, the Supreme Court schedule 
and the announcement of their decisions, all of this will be completed by that last week in June. So we're talking about six, maybe seven weeks until we know how the court rules on some major issues. So Mike Davis mentions Chevron deference. It was just announced that they are going to hear a case about Chevron deference, and that is going to be next term. But the writing is on the wall for the administrative state, hence the freak out. This is from the Cornell Law School. One of the most important principles in administrative law, the Chevron deference was coined after a landmark case, Chevron USA versus Natural Resources Defense Council. The Chevron deference is referring to the doctrine of judicial deference given to administrative actions. In Chevron, the Supreme Court set forth a legal test as to when the court should defer to the agency's answer or interpretation, holding that such judicial deference is appropriate where the agency's answer was not unreasonable so long as Congress had not spoken directly to the precise issue at question. The scope of Chevron deference doctrine is that when a legislative delegation to an administrative agency on a particular issue or question is not explicit, but rather implicit, a court may not substitute its own interpretation of the statute for a reasonable interpretation made by the administrative agency. Rather, as Justice Stevens wrote in Chevron, when the statute is silent or ambiguous with respect to the specific issue, the question for the court is whether the agency's action was based on a permissible construction of the statute. So basically, if Congress doesn't legislate specifically and it delegates power to an agency, that agency's decisions cannot be disallowed by the court so long as it can be argued that the agency's action was based on a permissible construction of the statute. So the court will defer to the agency's understanding of what Congress intended. Generally, to be accorded Chevron deference, the agency's interpretation of an ambiguous statute must be permissible, which the court has defined to mean rational or reasonable. In determining the reasonableness for the particular construction of a statute by the agency, the age of that administrative interpretation, as well as the congressional action or inaction in response to that interpretation at issue, can be a useful guide. If Congress was aware of the interpretation when it acted or refrained from action, and when the agency's interpretation is not consistent with the clear statutory language. In subsequent cases, the Supreme Court has narrowed the scope of Chevron deference, holding that only the agency interpretations reached through formal proceedings with the force of law, such as adjudications or notice and comment rulemaking, qualify for Chevron deference, while those contained in opinion letters, policy statements, agency manuals, or other formats that do not carry the force of law are not warranted a Chevron deference. In such cases, the court may give slightly less deferential treatment to the agency's interpretation, giving a persuasive value under the court's Skidmore deference analysis. So that narrowing of the scope basically pulls back some of the agency's ability to argue that whatever it's doing is reasonable and based on a permissible construction of statute and allowed these certain circumstances such as adjudications or notice and comment rulemaking 
that suggest a formalized process with the force of law. And then the agencies are allowed to go forward. And the notice and comment rulemaking is something we saw quite often throughout COVID. The FDA would have their little conferences. They would have notice and comment opportunities so that people could submit their comments and outside experts, for instance, could weigh in on the debate. And though we saw that, the agencies just continued to go forward with whatever decisions they wanted to make. Here's how CNN covered it a few days ago. The Supreme Court agreed Monday to reconsider long-held precedent and decide whether to significantly scale back on the power of federal agencies in a case that can impact everything from how the government addresses everything from climate change to public health to immigration. Conservative justices have long sought to rein in regulatory authority, arguing that Washington has too much control over American businesses and individual lives. The justices have been incrementally diminishing federal power, but the new case would allow them to take a much broader stride. The justices announced they would take up an appeal from herring fishermen in the Atlantic who say the National Marine Fisheries Service does not have the authority to require them to pay the salaries of government monitors who ride aboard the fishing vessels. Isn't that just an incredible example of how backwards our government is? They require regulators, government monitors to be aboard the fishing vessels, and then they make the companies pay for it. We talk about the state owning the means of production, and this might not be all the way there, but it's pretty damn close. If you have to pay government officials to come to your place of business and tell you what to do, at what point is it like, well, okay, they might as well just own it. Their action means they will reconsider a 1984 case, Chevron versus Natural Resources Defense Council, that sets forward factors to determine when courts should defer to a government agency's interpretation of the law. Conservatives on the bench have cast a skeptical eye on the so-called Chevron deference, arguing that agencies are often too insulated from the usual checks and balances essential to the separation of powers. And that is so obviously true that it's basically beyond question to any rational thinking person. And you got to hope that the court sees it the same way. I suspect they're going to, hence the freak out by the regime. The idea that agencies should be allowed to resolve ambiguities in statutes that they enforce has been a central feature of modern administrative law, said Steve Vladek, CNN Supreme Court analyst and professor at the University of Texas School of Law. If it's up to courts rather than agencies to resolve ambiguities, even in statutes delegating highly technical authority to the executive branch, that will give courts more power and the executive branch less on everything from environmental regulation to immigration to public health to meat inspections to telecommunications policy, Vladek said. In that respect, it's consistent with the current conservative majority's pattern of weakening the administrative state in favor of judicial power to answer all of these questions. So the fact that the court is going to hear a case about this issue is a shot across the bow to the administrative state, and it comes on the heels of last year's decision in West Virginia versus EPA where the court ruled that agencies were not just allowed to make up whatever regulations they wanted and then enforce them throughout the country unless Congress gave them the explicit authority to do so. 
This is how the Council for Foreign Relations covered that last year. On a broader level, the opinion cloaks federal rulemaking in uncertainty, particularly when the proposed regulation relates to climate change. The court's conservatives explicitly relied upon, for the first time in a majority opinion, the major questions doctrine. That doctrine holds that in extraordinary cases of political and economic significance, where an agency makes unheralded use of its authority, the agency must be able to point to a clear statement from Congress authorizing its action. Since climate change involves a matter of vast political and economic significance, and since Congress has failed to pass major climate legislation for years, the EPA could not point to the clear authorization required by the court. Most other agencies may well also lack a clear statement on climate change, putting a bullseye on climate regulations. Indeed, even though the ink is hardly dry on the decision, some have already trumpeted the majority opinion as grounds for challenging proposed climate rules from the Department of Transportation and the Securities and Exchange Commission, as well as an existing Nuclear Regulatory Commission rule. Uncertainty stemming from the decision will cause setbacks. And earlier in the same piece, they said, it creates a new hurdle the Biden administration must clear to achieve its 2030 goal of reducing admissions to 50 to 52 percent below 2005 levels. So their 2030 goal, you say, well, that's kind of funny because the words 2030 goal have a hyperlink attached and that hyperlink goes straight to the U.N. climate change page. So is that Biden's 2030 goal or is that the U.N.'s 2030 goal that Joe Biden is just enacting? Isn't it crazy how that works? It's actually just not a conspiracy theory. And then we also have Moore versus Harper. And that case has been affected a bit by a decision in North Carolina last week. This is from NPR on April 28th. A North Carolina court overrules itself in a case tied to a disputed election theory. North Carolina's highest court has overruled its earlier decision in a congressional redistricting lawsuit, throwing into question the case's status at the U.S. Supreme Court and whether that court's justices will rule on a contentious election issue. In an opinion released Friday, the majority, and this is Friday a couple weeks ago, the majority of the state court said that there is no judicially manageable standard by which to adjudicate partisan gerrymandering claims and courts, quote, are not intended to meddle in policy matters. This case is not about partisan politics, but rather about realigning the proper roles of the judicial and legislative branches. Today, we begin to correct course, returning the judiciary to its designated lane said the majority opinion, which was written by North Carolina Supreme Court Chief Justice Paul Newby, a Republican. The two Democrats on the court pushed back against the Republican majority's decision and characterization of the case. In their dissenting opinion, Justice Anita Earls said that through the earlier ruling that's now vacated, quote, a Democrat-controlled court carried out its sworn duty to uphold the state constitution's guarantee of free elections fair to all voters from both parties. This decision is now vacated by a Republican-controlled court seeking to ensure that extreme partisan gerrymanders favoring Republicans are established, wrote Earls, who was joined by Justice Michael Morgan. The North Carolina Supreme Court's decision marks the latest twist in a complicated case that is threatened to upend federal elections across the country. 
known at the state level as Harper versus Hall. The lawsuit centers on a once fringe, widely disputed idea, totally fringe and widely disputed, called the independent state legislature theory that claims that under the U.S. Constitution, state legislatures have a special power to determine how federal elections are conducted without any checks or balances from state constitutions or state courts. And that is a pretty clear constitutional argument just based on the actual words in the Constitution. North Carolina's high court had previously ruled against a congressional map drawn by Republican state lawmakers for violating the state's constitution. But after Republican justices took over the court's majority following last year's midterm elections, the court decided to hear the case again. This made the case especially messy because it's already been heard at the U.S. Supreme Court as Moore versus Harper. The court now may end up throwing out the case. So there have been appeals to the Supreme Court to throw out Moore versus Harper because Harper versus Hall in North Carolina has been overturned. And I don't want to get too conspiratorial here, but that sounds like something the regime would pull off to protect itself, reverse this state decision, and then tell the Supreme Court, hey, that case that you're thinking about and that case you're going to rule on, that issue of independent state legislature theory, as according to the Constitution, you don't have to worry about that now because the case was already redecided in North Carolina. So now that whole thing that's at the Supreme Court, that's just moot. I kind of doubt that they are going to throw out this case. I think we're going to see a decision on Moore versus Harper. Obviously, I have no way of knowing that right now. So let's see if I'm right. It's totally possible that I'm misreading the situation. But if we get a decision on Moore versus Harper, one would think that this now constitutional majority court would be ruling in our favor, returning power to govern elections, federal elections at the state level to state legislatures, as it says in the Constitution. Again, hence the regime freakout. And that's not me saying that. We can just look to NPR's own words. They said in this article, the decision marks the latest twist in a complicated case that has threatened to upend federal elections across the country. And think about what that means and why they'd say that. What they've done is work outside of the natural bounds of the Constitution to be able to put this election system in place. They maintain the system through lawfare. And I suspect the fear on their part is if all of the power to set the terms of federal elections within states is returned to the state legislature, then the entire election system can be wiped away pretty quickly by state legislatures who have a different idea about how elections should be run. So we're hearing these Clarence Thomas stories every day about how his friend Harlan Crow paid for their travel. They've been friends for decades. Harlan Crow has never had business in front of the court that Justice Clarence Thomas presided over. But nonetheless, the fact that he's friends with a rich guy who paid for some trips that he went on and reported according to Supreme Court standards somehow means that Clarence Thomas is corrupt and unfit to sit on the court. Yesterday, they tried to get him on allowing Harlan Crow to pay for the tuition 
of Clarence Thomas's great nephew, a kid who Clarence Thomas helped look after and raise. So for allowing someone to pay the tuition of a child that is not Clarence Thomas's and allowing that same person to pick up the tab on vacations that these two friends took together, Clarence Thomas is corrupt and should be removed from the court. Except there's also this. This is from the Washington Times yesterday. Justice Sotomayor got millions from publishing company while not recusing from cases. Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor reportedly accepted nearly $2 million from Penguin Random House in a book deal and then went on to sit in judgment of a copyright case involving that same company the following year. According to a report in the Daily Wire, she received $1.9 million from the publishing house in 2012. In 2013, she helped decide whether the court should take up a legal dispute between the company and a classmate of Meta's Mark Zuckerberg, who said his book proposal was stolen and used to make the movie The Social Network. The conservative outlet reported that this was not the only time Justice Sotomayor participated in the justices conference about which appeals to grant. It also noted a case involving a woman who claimed the publishing house copied her children's book. The justices did not take up either case. It is not known how Justice Sotomayor voted on whether to take up either case, though she did not publicly recuse herself. When the court declines to hear an appeal, it usually doesn't publicly say which, if any, among the justices might have wanted to do so. The Daily Wire estimated that Justice Sotomayor has received more than $3.5 million from Penguin Random House or its subsidiaries over the years. Now, in the afternoon yesterday, we got word of an email that's been publicly released now between John Brennan and Michael Morell. That email was released to John Solomon, and this is today's article on Just the News. Premeditated and admitted lie. Intel pros slam Biden laptop letter after bombshell revelation. In a rare and candid email exchange between two former CIA bosses, Michael Morell told John Brennan in October 2020 that he was organizing a letter of 51 Intel experts claiming the emergence of the Hunter Biden laptop was a Russian influence operation because he wanted to give Joe Biden's campaign, quote, a talking point to push back on Donald Trump during the last presidential debate of the 2020 election, according to documents obtained by Just the News. Brennan, who served as CIA director under President Barack Obama, willingly agreed to sign the letter after being told of its political intentions. OK, Michael, add my name to the list. Brennan wrote Morell on October 19th, 2020. Good initiative. Thanks for asking me to sign on. And John Solomon, of course, links to the email. The email exchange provides damning proof supporting House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan's explosive revelation last week that the now infamous intelligence letter, which was portrayed by news media, fact checkers and big tech as an independent and organic initiative by security experts, was in fact a political effort by U.S. spies instigated and assisted by Biden's campaign in an effort to influence the 2020 election. Now, that all sounds like a coup. Intelligence professionals reacted swiftly to the news Wednesday night, saying the revelation that two former CIA chiefs used their professional credentials to influence the 2020 election was troubling. 
This wasn't a talking point to toss back at Trump. It was a premeditated and admitted lie to the American people designed specifically to deceive and hide the truth. Retired FBI intelligence chief Kevin Brock told just the news and for what to help elect a politician. What a steep and sad cost to the soul for such a meager goal. That is well said. Morell testified to Jordan's committee that a conversation he had with current Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, then a Biden campaign advisor, triggered his effort to organize the letter, that his intention was to help Biden win the election, and that the Biden campaign provided assistance spreading the letter to news media. Blinken has since tried to minimize his role in the letter, insisting it wasn't his idea. But he has not denied having the conversation with Morell or sending a subsequent email to the former CIA boss containing a USA Today article that provided the key passage in the letter claiming the laptop was possible Russian disinformation. That claim proved untrue. The FBI had the laptop since December 2019, and U.S. intelligence had no evidence the laptop was a Russian disinformation operation, officials have admitted. The new email to Brennan obtained by Just the News shows Morell had a more specific intention to help Joe Biden and his campaign to discredit the laptop during the final presidential debate. Trying to give the campaign, particularly during the debate on Thursday, a talking point to push back on Trump on this issue, Morell wrote Brennan. The email also shows at least one signatory of the letter, Brennan, knew of the political intentions of the project before adding his name to it. The email also reveals some of the other experts whom Morell was trying to get to sign the letter, including former CIA director Leon Panetta, former Homeland Security Chief Jay Johnson, current Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco, and former National Security Agency Director Mike Rogers. Some, like Panetta, signed the letter, while others, like Rogers, did not. And of course, Mike Rogers did not because Mike Rogers, by all indications, is a patriot. And the article goes on. Head on over to Just the News if you want to read the rest of it. This is John Solomon yesterday discussing the story on Sean Hannity's show on Fox News. And by the way, I just have to give a hat tip to my friend. The storm has arrived 17. I often yank his clips and put them on this podcast. And I don't always mention him, but he's the best and deserves a big thank you always. It's only been about an hour. There's been a lot of condemnation coming out from career professionals who didn't sign the letter. I want to just read you one of them if you give me the chance, because uh, I think it's such oh, a powerful I, I think statement. I actually have this. Is this you're talking about yeah. uh, retired Kevin FBI Brock. Intel chief Kevin Brock? Yep. All right, yeah. let's put let's it up on the screen. This is important. Let's, let's show our audience this. Kevin Brock worked for Bob Mueller. He's one of the most trust, trusted FBI executives retired in the community. Everybody trusts this guy. This is what he said. This wasn't just a talking point to toss back at Trump. It was a premeditated and admitted lie to the American people designed specifically to deceive and hide the truth. Um, and for what? To help elect a politician? What a steep and sad cost to the soul for such a meager goal. What a rebuke from someone that practiced the intelligence rules the way they were supposed to be, who didn't sign the letter. Our spies intervened in the 2020 election to help Joe Biden and to hurt Donald Trump. And there was no other deeper. way to read this email. They had, the FBI had the laptop in December of 2019. You told me right. that they verified the authenticity in the spring of 2020. Okay, then why was yes, the sir. FBI in the months leading up to the, that election, 
Why were they meeting weekly with big tech and telling them that they may be a victim of misinformation campaigns and it may be about Hunter and Joe Biden? Uh, did they know that Rudy Giuliani would likely uh, leak that? Well, remember something else. They also tried to fool Senator Johnson and Grassley. They gave a bogus intelligence operation trying to throw Chuck Grassley and Ron Johnson off the scent of the Hudden Biden family. The entire intelligence community, FBI, CIA, these former retired people, they were all working to create the false illusion that Hunter Biden and Joe Biden didn't have a problem, a problem we now all are dealing with while he's president. They worked together to try to deceive the American people. American spies influenced the 2020 American election. Not Russian spies, not Iranian, Chinese, North Korean. American spies did it, and they used the tactics they learned as intelligence professionals, creating false illusions, false realities. We call it propaganda or psyops. They did it to the American people. They fooled us into thinking we shouldn't trust the laptop. Now, I know that everybody's first reaction is to be like, yeah, we know this. We've known this for a long time and nothing's happening. And I totally get that reaction. I really, really do. Okay. I totally get it. It's a frustrating situation. We'd like it to all be wrapped up. We want to be proven right so that we can re-enter polite society. We want people to stop calling us names and saying we're crazy. I totally understand. But also understand what just happened. John Solomon just appeared on Sean Hannity's show, and obviously Fox is in the midst of a catastrophic decline in viewership because of the severing of their relationship with Tucker Carlson. But regardless, this is mainstream media blasting out to the public that our intelligence officials, 51 of them, were involved in an orchestrated campaign to lie about a presidential candidate who is compromised by our foreign adversaries. And they did it in order to steal an American election. They also did all that in a time of war. We were under a national emergency for COVID, for COVID in quotes. Donald Trump said from the White House podium multiple times that he's a wartime president. And we have the intelligence community acting on behalf of the global regime, lying to the American people, setting up a premise for Joe Biden to lie to the American people about the substance and authenticity of the Hunter Biden laptop and the information contained on it. What should we call this? Is it a coup? Is it treason? Is it both? Yeah, it's both. And slowly but surely, the general public is going to understand this stuff as it gets out there over time, as the information circulates through the public mind and these stories build on one another. We hear the CIA involved in 9-11 just a couple of weeks ago. Tucker spent parts of this year talking about how the CIA was responsible for the takedown of Richard Nixon and how the CIA was responsible for the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And eventually it becomes impossible to deny the things people want to deny. They want to be able to say, no, this sort of thing could never happen in the United States. No, there was not an orchestrated operation to make sure that Donald Trump could not win the 2020 election. They want to deny all of that, but they're losing the basis upon which they can deny it. The CIA absolutely would do that sort of thing. And it's being proven again over and over in a bunch of different ways. 
people's default position growing up. We understand in this society, at least at my age, and I imagine the generation behind me, I don't know what Zoomers are getting taught now, but people understand that the CIA takes over governments around the world. People have a general understanding that the intelligence community has been involved in multiple anti-American things throughout our history. At some point, fighting back against these narratives just becomes no longer worth it. And just to add on some context, Patriot Arts Farm found or perhaps compiled this clip concerning Mike Morrell in 2016. Single thing in my op-ed that got the most attention was I said, this guy's been recruited. Un, you said he's an agent of the Russian Federation. Un, un, unwitting. Unwitting, unwitting agent of the Russian agent Federation. Of the Federation has been recruited by Putin. That's why he's taken the positions he's taken. In an op-ed today in the New York Times, which I'm sure many people have seen, he wrote this in part. Trump is not only unqualified for the job, but he may well pose a threat to our national security. He wrote in the New York Times that Donald Trump has no experience in national security. Quote, the character traits he has exhibited during the primary season suggest he would be a poor, even dangerous, commander-in-chief. Clinton secured a major endorsement from former acting CIA director Mike Morrell. So that's your guy, the regime's defender against the very bad Donald Trump. You gotta love the CIA endorsing Hillary Clinton and following that up with lying to the American public to attempt to convince them that Joe Biden was actually capable of getting 81 million real lawful American votes. Imagine how many fewer people would have ever believed that result if they had all known the Hunter Biden laptop was 100% real and there was absolute indisputable evidence of Joe Biden's career of political corruption on that laptop. Now, we've been talking at length about the collapse of mainstream media and legacy media outlets. Their ratings are tumbling. They're losing or parting ways with key talent. They're being exposed as propagandists who have no problem whatsoever lying directly to their audience's faces while pursuing an agenda opposite of what their audience wants. And now we have this today from Zero Hedge. Soros and Fortress to acquire Vice Media out of bankruptcy. Vice Media, which once had a valuation of $5.7 billion, went woke and is now broke. It's set to be acquired out of bankruptcy at a valuation of around $400 million by Fortress Investment Group and Soros Fund Management, according to the Wall Street Journal, citing people familiar with the matter. A bankruptcy filing appears imminent and would be a fitting ending to the tumultuous story of Vice, a new media phoenix that rose out of the ashes with its iconoclastic counterculture facade, then quickly sought to supplant the media establishment before persuading it to invest hundreds of millions. In 2017, after a funding round from the private equity firm TPG Group, Vice was worth $5.7 billion. Around this time, the company realized that for the money to keep flowing, it would need to curb its rebellious ways and quickly turned woke, losing most of its fans in the process. Just in case anyone wonders why Vice went woke. And Zero Hedge includes a screenshot from an article dated May 3rd, 2019 that says Vice Media gets $250 million in debt funding from George Soros 
and other investors. As a result, the company's current valuation is only a fraction of what it was five years ago, as we mentioned earlier this week when discussing the imminent bankruptcy filing. Wall Street Journal said under the deal to purchase the distressed media company out of bankruptcy, all stockholders, including TPG, Sixth Street Partners, and media tycoon James Murdoch, would be wiped out in the proposed reorganization plan. The people said outstanding debts held by TPG and Sixth Street, quote, would also be impaired as part of the plan. So George Soros, or whoever's spending his money, put $250 million in four years ago, and now he's attempting to bail this media company out after they have lost virtually all of their audience and all of their value. What could be more desperate than making sure that vice media doesn't totally collapse? Hilariously, vice has a new show on Showtime that Showtime is now constantly promoting. And I guess it's possible that people might just watch it accidentally if the AI recommends it. Now, this week, we've also had a brand new Hollywood Writers Guild of America writer's strike. And with it comes the not unfortunate news that the late shows, the network late night comedy shows and shows like Saturday Night Live and The Daily Show do not have writers and hence won't be on air for a little while or maybe a much longer while. I have friends in Hollywood that say the writer's strike is expected to last up to 100 days, perhaps more. Obviously, that remains to be seen. I wonder what any of this is about because there is no way in the world that the Writers Guild or any of the other Hollywood unions actually exist to protect their real, productive, successful workers. Unions are supposed to be set up to protect workers against the owners of the organization who employ those workers. And what unions actually do is convince the public that they are protecting workers while doing what the organizations who employ those workers want done. They always claim that they are looking out for the most vulnerable workers. They're trying to protect all of the union members. And so they figure out which little scraps they can throw at the least productive workers in the union in order to claim that they are helping the vast majority of people in the union while doing, in this case, whatever it is the studios actually want. And among the issues being argued over is AI. This is from Above the Line, an industry news outlet. The AI revolution has already reached the studio's gates and Disney's Bob Iger may be the only CEO who can stop it. Ah, yes, of course, Disney is going to step in to stop the advance of the technocracy. Sure they are. For weeks, multiple studios and streamers have been planning to use AI to generate scripts based on books and other IP that is in the public domain, with lists of titles making the rounds among development executives. Multiple insiders have told above the line. I'm reliably told that nearly every studio has already explored this possibility and that those plans come to fruition over the weeks and likely months to come. The studios plan to hire writers to rewrite those scripts once the writer's strike is over. 
That is, of course, a major sticking point in these negotiations, as the WGA is insistent that AI not be used to create any literary material whatsoever. In case you haven't been paying attention to the headlines the last few days, AI has seemingly become the defining issue of this strike, as the very profession of film and television writing is at stake, as is the future of the Guild itself. And that, my friends, is why I always believe you should assume that there is something much deeper going on. These non-working writers out there on picket lines with their clever little signs are not ultimately what this is about. This is about whether a much larger agenda can be implemented in this industry and how they're going to sell that agenda to the public. While I'm firmly on the writer's side here and believe that AI will never be capable of writing a truly great movie like The Social Network or even a very good one, it can aid a writer and also provide a framework that the writer can tweak and put their own stamp of humanity on, thereby speeding up the development process and saving the studio some shekels, since it won't have to pay writers to start from scratch, which is precisely why the guild is pushing back. The writers are simply defending what little turf they have left, and I understand why the Guild is fighting tooth and nail against this, but I can also see the studio's perspective. Folks on the studio side suggest that writers should not fear AI, but rather embrace it, as its usage is inevitable, and there are those who believe it can be a wonderful tool, both for writing and actual filmmaking. You see, you're not supposed to resist something once the regime tells you it's inevitable. Apparently, you're just supposed to lie back and enjoy it. I had been under the impression that Hollywood did not approve of that principle. The fear surrounding AI is certainly understandable, as it is with any technology that is considered disruptive. To its supporters, though, it's all about how you use it. Studios can use AI to replace writers or help them improve their work. And let's face it, there is room for improvement these days. How might it do the latter? It could deepen fan engagement or identify things that fans want to see that a writer would then, well, write. With proper training, AI can be another tool in the writer's toolkit. And so the article goes on and on. One of the issues here is that the Writers Guild is trying to get it so that they have a number of writers put on staff no matter what. Even if one person is capable of writing a project by themselves, which many people do, they still want six, maybe seven, maybe eight writers assigned to write the project. And a lot of people are interpreting that as a way to make work for these essentially unemployed writers who make up the bulk of the WGA. But consider that motivation within the context of this discussion about AI. What would those writers be doing in this scenario? The AI comes up with the script and then you essentially just have a room full of formerly unemployed, mediocre writers doing nothing more than really checking and adjusting the AI's work. At that point, you don't really need any writers because checking an AI's work is not writing. Maybe there are some top level people who continue to work producing human created content. But you can imagine that all of that content is going to be pushing out the same political agenda or else those writers won't get hired to create projects. 
And of course, this leaves Hollywood in one of the most hypocritical positions anyone could ever imagine. These are the people who go out there online and just say as a statement of fact, all of these other industries are going to have to be shut down. The coal industry gone. The gas companies get rid of them. All the fossil fuels, just no more of those. We don't need trucks transporting anything. What we need is self-driving trucks that will transport everything across the country. So fire all the truckers and you just go on down the list. And then they all support universal basic income. The whole Andrew Yang agenda, get rid of all of these people, all of these industries. If we don't like them, people's jobs be damned, replace people with computers, replace people with AI. All of it is inevitable. We just have to lay back and try to enjoy it. Except when it comes to Hollywood, and then all of that is really bad. In fact, we can't lose any jobs. In fact, we need to have more people employed, even though they're not necessary. The solution is, was, and has been to create a parallel industry, and it would have behooved people to begin focusing on that a couple of years ago, but people didn't. They just assumed that they would keep chugging along. You got to keep working. Sooner or later, the pendulum will swing back in the other way. And it certainly is in terms of the content that's being purchased and produced. Some of that wokeness is going away. But it's also entirely possible that people have doubled down over the last three years on an industry that is ultimately doomed and open to replacing all of them. While the union pretends it's actually doing all of this for the workers, it's clear they have a roadmap on how to get rid of writers and replace them with AI. We already have exceptional CGI and special effects that can remove the need completely for human actors. We even have AI that can take someone's voice and create virtually anything they could ever say in a way that is totally indistinguishable from them having said it. So who do they actually need among all these people who believe that they are very important artists? And people might imagine that they can distinguish between human-produced content and AI-produced content. Whether or not that's true, there's also the problem that people might not care. If the AI content makes them just as happy and keeps them just as entertained as the human produced content does, a lot of those people are not going to give two shits. They'll probably think it's really cool that AI made the entire movie. Ooh, we're going to see the first movie made totally by AI. You think something like that can't happen? It absolutely can happen. And there's no reason to believe it's not happening because they're discussing the roadmap for it right now in these negotiations. On Monday, we got this from CNBC. Godfather of AI leaves Google after a decade to warn society of technology he's touted. Jeffrey Hinton, known as the godfather of AI, received his Ph.D. in artificial intelligence 45 years ago and has remained one of the most respected voices in the field. For the past decade, Hinton worked part-time at Google between the company's Silicon Valley headquarters and Toronto, but he has quit the internet giant and he told the New York Times that he'll be warning the world about the potential threat of AI, which he said is coming sooner than previously thought. I thought it was 30 to 50 years or even longer away, 
Hinton told The Times in a story published Monday. Obviously, I no longer think that. Hinton, who was named the 2018 Turing Award winner for conceptual and engineering breakthroughs, said he now has some regrets over his life's work, The Times reported. He cited the near-term risks of AI taking jobs and the proliferation of fake photos, videos, and text that appear real to the average person. In a statement to CNBC, Hinton said, I now think the digital intelligences we are creating are very different from biological intelligences. And the article goes on. But the godfather of AI is warning people about AI. It's so dangerous. Everybody is warning everybody about AI. And that part is fine. There's good reason to be concerned about AI. But why is this guy the one telling us? And why now? It kind of has a feel similar to when the Facebook whistleblower, in quotes, Francis Hogan, came out and told the public on 60 Minutes she whistleblew to the mainstream media about how the social media companies could affect people emotionally and lead to anxiety, depression, thoughts of suicide, etc. All of it was stuff we knew five years earlier. This seems to me like some form of limited hangout. They want the public to be scared of AI. They want the public to take the threat of AI seriously. This is Sam Altman from OpenAI talking to Ari Melber on CNBC. In the short term, I think there's a, a lot of issues that people are now discussing. Uh, provenance of content is a good example and a big one, right? Like, we're, how are we going to know what content is is real, is, is generated, is from a human? You need to know that you're talking to a human or an AI when it's one or the other. I think you should. So th there's a class of things about that. Uh, and then longer term, as these systems become really, really powerful, I do think we will need some sort of international authority um, that is that is looking at the people building the most powerful systems. Now, do you see where I'm going with this? Scare everybody about how bad AI could make the world and then tell them that in order to protect you from what our AI could do, the solution is to set up an international board of advisors who get to determine how AI is used worldwide. And that's just about the worst idea I could possibly imagine. Hand control of the future of AI over to an international body of these guys? Why would anyone choose to do that? Well, the only reason anyone would choose to do that is if everyone was horrified about the potential of AI. And think about the overall logic here. Hey, we created this thing. Turns out this thing that we created could be extraordinarily dangerous to the point where it could destroy the entire world. Whoever was governing this thing that we've created could really exercise an enormous amount of influence over virtually everything that happens. Therefore, what we need to do is set up an international governing body that sets all the standards for this thing that we've created that can be dangerous, that can control the entire world. You see, we're going to have to have this one organization that we also control set up in order to control this other dangerous thing we've created. So it's basically like the WHO, but rather than for pandemics, it's for AI. But don't worry, 
everything's going to be okay. This is from Breitbart yesterday. Kamala Harris named AI czar to save us from artificial intelligence. The White House announced a plan to crack down on artificial intelligence on Thursday amid growing concerns over the advanced technology possibly replacing humanity someday, naming Vice President Kamala Harris as AI czar in charge of the new initiative. Harris, who has the lowest approval rating of any modern vice president, will lead the initiative as AI czar with a $140 million budget, the White House said. Vice President Harris and senior administration officials will meet today with CEOs of four American companies at the forefront of AI innovation, the Biden administration explained. Harris is meeting with Microsoft, OpenAI, Anthropic, and Google to discuss how potential risks involving AI can be reduced. AI is one of the most powerful technologies of our time, but in order to seize the opportunities it presents, we must first mitigate its risks, the Biden administration said. The plan is to launch seven new AI research institutes, which will bring the total number of such institutes to 25 across the United States. From there, the entities will ask companies like Google, Microsoft, and ChatGPT's creator, OpenAI, to participate in public evaluation of AI systems. And so let's think about what we were discussing yesterday with the algorithm and Jeffrey Epstein, right? They were working on this algorithm for banking. He was in discussions with Ariane de Rothschild about this. He is closely connected to Larry Page from Google and OpenAI, and he's closely connected to Bill Gates, who still holds a lot of sway at Microsoft. It's really starting to sound like one of the major Jeffrey Epstein projects was the creation of this overriding algorithm that essentially governs everything based on AI. But don't worry, Kamala Harris is here to save us as the new AI czar. And thank goodness, because there's actually a way that Kamala Harris could be really, really successful at this job, even though all of the other jobs she's been tasked with have been monumental failures. And it's this. Kamala Harris has a unique ability to solve the AI problem. She could go hang out with the AI and talk to the AI and cackle at the AI until the AI just surreptitiously decided to end itself. There may not be a single person in the world dumb enough and annoying enough to make the AI want to end its own life other than Kamala Harris. And this is the only time that I could ever imagine myself saying Kamala Harris would be perfect for this job. But I think that this might really be her great opportunity. And thank goodness we have someone like that pretending to be vice president and AI czar or else this opportunity to solve the AI problem once and for all may have never been presented to us. And before we go, I want to discuss one of the latest jump the shark moments in our burgeoning dystopia. This is from yesterday in the New York Times by Nobel Prize winner Paul Krugman. The headline is doing whatever it takes on debt. The United States is barreling toward a debt crisis. The possibility of default on U.S. debt is already beginning to royal markets. What's odd about this potential crisis is that it has nothing to do with excessive debt. 
Maybe you think the federal government has borrowed too much over time. We can argue about such things, but that's beside the point right now. America in 2023 isn't like, say, Greece in 2009 or Argentina in 2001, cut off by investors because they have lost faith in our solvency. Oh, hey, Paul Krugman, what a great point. Yes, we can totally argue over whether being $31 trillion in debt is a problem. And you can put forward the notion that it's not a problem because the regime will just keep creating fiat regime bucks to solve the problem, but it's not convincing anyone anymore. And you don't need a Nobel prize to figure that out. Our looming crisis will instead be entirely self-inflicted or more accurately Republican inflicted. If it happens, it will be because the party controlling the house refuses to raise the debt ceiling, a quirk of the U S budget process that lets Congress prevent the government from making payments that have already been approved through past legislation. And you have to laugh about the primacy of past legislation being this matter of great importance. We can't possibly change the plans we've already put in place. There are three things you need to know about this crisis. First, whatever courts may say about the constitutionality of the debt ceiling, budget decisions should be dictated by votes over spending and taxing, not by hostage taking in which the party most willing to destroy the economy gets what it wants. Wait a second. That's you, Kami. You're the ones who have exploded the debt to $31 trillion and keep asserting that the regime should just create more fiat money to keep that debt spending going, putting future generations of Americans into indentured servitude. And you're also the ones doing the hostage taking, saying, oh, America's credit rating will be destroyed and no one will ever trust us again if you don't keep giving us all the money we could ever ask for forever. And you can't just gloss over the constitutionality of the debt ceiling. Second, if the politics of extortion do lead to a debt default, the consequences will be catastrophic or they won't. Maybe they'll only be catastrophic for the regime and its agenda and the organizations and entities pursuing that agenda on behalf of the regime. It's probably not going to be catastrophic for the American people. And that's all that matters. Third, there is no economic downside to the various ways the Biden administration might seek to bypass Republican extortion and continue normal governance. Yes, it is extortion now not to raise the debt ceiling and to propose a bill that agrees to raise the debt ceiling, but cuts back the omnibus spending bill from last December during the lame duck session. That is all extortion. Contrary to a lot of misinformation out there, Things like issuing premium bonds or minting a platinum coin would not be inflationary. They sound undignified, but creating a global depression because we're afraid of looking silly would be utterly irresponsible. Here's how budgeting is supposed to work. Congress passes bills that set tax rates and determine spending, which become law if the president signs them. Much of the time, the legislated spending exceeds revenue, so the government must borrow to cover the difference. So be it. But under a quirk of U.S. law with complicated origins, Congress must vote a second time to authorize the borrowing required by its own previous votes. 
That's not a quirk. Congress shouldn't be able to just make up whatever spending it wants and expect the government and the regime to create all the money necessary and flood it into our economy to meet their demands. What would it mean if Congress refused to authorize that borrowing? That is, refused to raise the debt ceiling. It wouldn't be a way to restrain spending. It would instead amount to preventing the president from making payments Congress has already mandated. It would be like buying a bunch of home furnishings, taking delivery, and then refusing to pay the bill, except it's actually nothing like that. And it would be hugely destructive. Sure it would, bud. A new report from the White House Council of Economic Advisors lays out potential costs from a default induced by Republican refusal to raise the debt ceiling. Again, it would now be Biden's refusal to raise the debt ceiling because he doesn't want to negotiate. That meeting is supposed to be happening on Tuesday between Biden and McCarthy and some others. The analysis suggests that a protracted default could cost 8 million jobs as a result of shock to consumers and business confidence, increased rates on U.S. debt, which investors would no longer consider safe, and drastic forced cuts in government spending. And the last one is the one they're really concerned over. They are protecting the regime. They are protecting the bureaucracy. They are protecting the administrative state. And they're protecting all the organizations they're directing government money toward to, of course, help them advance their agenda. Even these projections may understate the likely damage. Until now, the world has viewed U.S. government debt as the ultimate safe asset. As a result, Treasury bills play a crucial role as collateral in many financial transactions. Make these bills unsafe, IOUs that the U.S. may not honor, and the whole global financial system could freeze up. In fact, this almost happened for a few days in March 2020, and it's not clear whether a rescue could be engineered in today's political environment. Thank goodness they had COVID to prevent any big problems with the debt ceiling in 2020. So what can be done? Let's not make a deal. Republicans are effectively engaged in a fiscal version of January 6th, using the threat of destruction in an attempt to exert total control, even though voters gave them only one House of Congress. President Biden shouldn't give in to extortion, let alone make any deal acquiescing to the demands of extremists who control the House GOP. Yes, Kevin McCarthy is an extremist now. It's extortion. It is a fiscal insurrection to not give them a clean debt ceiling raise. This is lunacy. It's possible that Biden could simply declare that he must implement duly enacted fiscal legislation and that a debt ceiling that prevents him from doing so is unconstitutional. Good luck. Beyond that, there are those gimmicks. Yes, they would be gimmicks. I don't have space to explain premium bonds, but they would involve playing games with the definition of debt. As for the platinum coin, the law allowing the government to mint a trillion dollar coin was never intended as a way to bypass debt limit extortion, but the debt limit was never intended to provide a mechanism for extortion either. And how about that construction? It takes as its premise that what's happening with the debt ceiling is extortion. It is plainly not extortion in any way. It might be the exercise of leverage, but it's not extortion. It is well within the bounds of what they're allowed to do. And Biden could simply negotiate and give up on that omnibus spending bill they passed in the lame duck. But regime communists like Paul Krugman can't handle that. It's amazing that the people who have backed and encouraged 
our descent into a state of $31 trillion in debt and rising constantly thinks other people are doing the extortion and operating outside the bounds of what their job entails. The American people are not for anything that Paul Krugman is saying. And his response is essentially that it doesn't matter what they're saying or what they want the Republican Congress to do. The Republican Congress has to do what the regime demands. Back to Krugman. And there are no significant economic downsides to using these gimmicks. I've been shocked to see people who should know better, including mainstream media outlets, report as fact the myth that, say, minting the coin would be inflationary. It wouldn't. It would simply be a backdoor way to continue normal financing, bypassing the letter of a debt ceiling that shouldn't exist in the first place. Wah. I'm not sure what specific approach the Biden administration will adopt, but the guiding rule should be to do whatever it takes to get through this. Whatever it takes, that is, other than giving into extortion. Hey, Paul Krugman, you're the one doing the extortion here. You're saying that the will of the American people doesn't matter. Congress operating in the normal bounds of congressional operation doesn't matter. $31 trillion in debt doesn't matter. Rampant inflation and the creation of more rampant inflation doesn't matter. And he's denying that would happen, which is absurd coming from all the people who told us that inflation was transitory a couple of years ago and who've tried to argue that we were never in recession. And all of this nonsense is the setup for Paul Krugman to argue that we should print a trillion dollar platinum coin to increase the money supply in order to meet the demands of what Congress passed in the lame duck session. That is absolutely extraordinary. We have fully reached clown world, my friends. I'll be back on Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble, and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at imyourmoderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash imyourmoderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!